Well, after the completely peaceful and trauma-free stanza of Psalm 119, which we looked at last week, we are back in the desperate world of the psalmist, the land of struggles and enemies. In our text this evening, the stanza beginning at verse 109, which is on the back of the bulletin. And we'll look at this under three headings, the word and suffering and resolve. So first, the word. Psalm 119, verse 105, very well-known verse, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light on my path. The psalmist mentions his feet in this uh, stanza, his mouth, his hands, and his heart. All those metaphors are used in the stanza. His feet, his mouth, and his heart are all engaged with the word, and his life, he says, is in his hands. So engaging with God and with his word, with the world and its darkness, is a full-bodied calling. Hands, feet, eyes, mouth, inner man, outer man are enlisted. But first, it's the feet. The word, he says, is a lamp for my feet. It's a light on my path. Which means it guides my unique personal path through life. It's a beautiful thing, right? The, the word is a lamp for your feet and you, a light on your path. The lamp here is, is a, a small, like, bowl-shaped container with a wick, kind of like a portable lantern. Now, I don't want to press this too hard, but I want to make a point about the image in general, because I think it's important. Right, the word is a hand-carried kind of lamp. It's not a spotlight. It's not a searchlight or a floodlight. It's not even a streetlight. It's not even a big, bright room lamp. <laughs> This is not to diminish the power or the, the splendor of the word, but I often think people can overstate and distort the purpose of Scripture. Now, I think a lot of Christian worldview thinking is guilty of this, in my opinion. As if we have some sort of manual, a complete manual, almost a manifesto that's going to give us a, a robust, sufficient view of all things human. Art, culture, politics, economic science. This is not to say, it's not to say there aren't broad, basic principles, that there isn't a certain Christian vantage point on the world in Scripture. I wouldn't say that. Nor would I want to diminish the perfection or the fullness of Scripture or even its transforming power for us. But it is to say this. The book is not trying to do everything. Right? Or even close to everything. It's not trying to answer every question that comes to us from every field. It even leaves massive theological questions unaddressed. You'll notice this, Carol. If you listen to Christians' debate, you'll often notice that the debate is what I would call underdetermined, meaning impossible to resolve by the text. And by that I mean the text is not asking, much less answering, 
especially not definitively answering all the questions that we like to put to it or all the answers we try to wrench from it on all the issues we care about. Right? This, in part, is why there are you know, seven Christian views on war and five Christian views on economic things and 19 different Christian views on modern art and 43 Christian views on that by well-meaning, well-intentioned people. This may point to the fact that we're not caring or passionate enough about the right issues. Right? It would be a great boon, I think, if we would learn to use the text for the purposes for which it was given. And then, perhaps much later, one could talk about the social implications. Because what it is, the word is a lamp for your feet. Right? It's primarily, primarily there to help you take the next step, to guide you through the darkness and to get you home, right? to get you to heaven, to get you to God. It's there to equip you for godliness, for goodness, for, goodness, for good deeds on the way. It's not a blowtorch illuminating everything. That view can, can tend to make us pompous pontificators on every subject. Even with all of its light, in this age, Paul reminds us, we still always see through a glass darkly. That's a great tension, is it not? You know, Jesus is the light of the world. Scripture is God's light. Light has been poured out into the darkness in the incarnation. And yet, we still see in a kind of opaque way. The word doesn't ever make the mystery of even our own being or the world and its horrors or even the mystery of God and his ways, they're never made manageable to us. Remember, I think it was the Sunday before this one, we looked at 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1 on the transfiguration. Right? And Peter told the church then that the word was like a lamp you should pay attention, he said. You're not going to get the vision I got on the mountain. You should pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures, which was, was like a lamp, he said, shining in a dark place. The dark place refers to this age, what Paul calls this present darkness, this present evil age. And I mentioned back then that the word that Peter used suggests a squalid, murky dungeon. Into the dark dungeon of the age, the prophetic word shines like a lamp. So that this image, right, of a lamp illuminating the surrounding darkness, it belongs to both testaments. You have it here in Psalm 119. You have it in the same identical idea in 2 Peter 1. So Christ has broken into the world into the darkness, and yet we're still waiting for the full dawning of his light. And thus we have to give heed to the word, heed to the lamp, until the day dawns. But the image here of the lamp's not the only metaphor. It's not the only metaphor. In verse 111, the word is called his heritage forever, or his portion. Now, this is a remarkable thing to call 
The psalmist is probably referring to the Torah. He, here the Torah is doing the function of the lamb. Right? The land is called Israel's portion, Israel's inheritance. And here he says, your Torah is my portion, your law. It's where the psalmist dwells. It's where he's camped out in the Torah. It's his heritage, his allotment, his home. It's a really stunning image. It can go by you quickly if you read Psalm 119. Because God himself is his portion, right? Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, there is none that I desire on the earth. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is my portion forever. Because God is his portion, the word is also his portion or his heritage. And as such, he says, your statutes are the joy of my heart. We've seen this idea over and over and over again, right? That it's fraudulent to call God our joy without his statutes being our joy. And it's impossible to have the statutes be our joy unless God himself is our joy. God has just bound these things together. I love this. One, one commentator here says that the Torah, then, is a whole promised land of joy for the psalmist. It's a kind of land. It's a kind of continent for you to inhabit. Have you ever thought of Scripture like that? Like the land of Canaan? Scripture is like a little mini land flowing with milk and honey. It's a promised land for you to dwell in and to delight in and that's because God himself is your portion and your promised land of delight. And so, that being the case, he asked God in verse 108 to be his teacher, to grant him understanding, to give him more light from his lamp. Accept, Lord, he says, the freewill offering, the, the willing praise of my mouth. So he shifts from feet to mouth. Now this... This language, this free will offering, this is not a prescribed offering in the law, in the book of Leviticus, for example. But it's one made in response to some action where God shows you mercy, or God delivers you, or protects you. And you would then offer a free will offering. Right? It's an offering that comes from your free will. So he's seeking the presence of God, communion with God, through the sacrifice of praise. He's saying, my free will offering is, is to praise you. And again, there's kind of a spiral here, right? Praise leads to more understanding. Greater understanding leads to, to greater praise. Worship creates understanding. Understanding enriches, enriches and then deepens worship. We've seen this over and over in Psalm 119, but Lent is a good time to be reminded of this. There's no way to revitalize and renew and deepen your Christian life except this way. So that's the word. The second point I'm going to make is suffering. Clearly, life is, is dangerous, and it's disturbing for the psalmist. So by now, I think we can say this about Psalm 119, right? It is not a measured reflection from the calm of one's study. This is something that maybe, you know, if you quickly read Psalm 119 once in a while, you know, maybe once every couple of years, you look at it, you know, it's that big, long poem on the law. 
It seems like it might be sort of, you know, just a, you know, a, a sober meditation on the law. But when you get your eyeballs up close to it, you realize this is a desperate meditation in the turbulence and on the dark pathways and in the confusion of life. In almost every stanza, not the stanza we looked at last week, but in many, many stanzas. And that's wonderful because that's what we need. Right? That's where we live. Suffering when the righteous endure it by faith, produces glory. And it was copious suffering, we should not forget this, that produced the glory that is Psalm 119. Right? There's no way someone who didn't suffer writes this psalm. And you can almost hear the pain in verse 107. He says, I have suffered much, Lord. I have suffered much, according to your word. He's severely afflicted. And again, he needs his very life, his very physical existence to be sustained and quickened and renewed. And he calls on God to do that according to his word, according to his speech. Of course, God keeps us alive by his word in general, even when we're healthy and things are going well. But we become acutely aware of it in affliction. That it's God's breathing of his word that sustains all things. If you look at verses 109 and 110, you can see the suffering pretty vividly. He says he constantly takes his life in his own hands. Literally means my life is in the open palm. And the idea here is it's, it's fragile. It, I, it, it could fall or, or perhaps be snatched out by the wicked. It's not, it's not like my life is in my hand like this. It's, it's like I'm holding my life like this. My very existence seems fragile in case, you know, because it is fragile. So he feels exposed and he feels undefended. The wicked, he says, have set a snare for him. So the suffering is great. It's constant. It presents a real danger. We're not told the specifics of what it is, but that's a good thing because we can, we can see a reflection of our own lives in that threat. And that brings me to the third point I want to make tonight, which is resolution. It seems with this offering of a, of a free will offering of praise, and there's language in verse 106 about him taking an oath or a vow, which was also a type of a peace offering. It seems reasonable to deduce something like this, that in the midst of his suffering the psalmist made a free will offering to God and took some sort of vow to God. You see that in verse 106. I have taken an oath and confirmed it. This is what suffering people do. Sometimes very desperately they're bargaining. Sometimes perhaps more earnestly and more well-informed, they're making a, so a sober oath before the Lord in the midst of the anguish. The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are also in their own ways oaths. In fact, the word sacrament, as it's been used in the Western church, refers to an oath that one would take upon entering military service. Oaths. They're pledges, then, by which we swear allegiance to Christ and to following him whatever the cost. That's what the sacraments are. So by referring back to your baptism, by celebrating the supper, what are we doing? Well, we're doing a lot of things, 
But one obvious thing we're doing is we're stealing our wills. Right? We're fortifying our own resolutions to follow Christ in the midst of a dark and hostile culture and world. And the psalmist has taken an oath, and he's confirmed it. So that he says, I will follow your righteous laws. Notice how vigorous and forceful he is here in his own resolute willing before God. He says, I will follow your righteous laws. Though my life is constantly in my hands, I will not forget your law. Right? Though the wicked set a snare, I have not strayed from your precepts. Now, I mean, it's true. We often make resolutions and are not very good at carrying them out. But that's not a, that doesn't tell against resolution making. It just means we have to renew ourselves, ask God for mercy and grace, and resolve again. Right? We wouldn't want to throw resolutions out just because we tend to be fickle with ours. Look finally uh, on this matter of resolve. It's on verse 112, where he says, My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Now, now for, in the Hebrew mindset, right, the heart is, is not just the, it's not here. It includes the whole inner person, mind, will, emotions, affections. Heart just means my inner person. So my inner person is set or fixed or resolved to keep God's decrees to the end. Of course, you know this, in the, in the rest of the psalm, we know you can hear him do things like this. He will cry out to God. He'll say, oh God, incline my heart to keep your law. Or turn my eyes away from vanity. So on the one hand, it's, oh Lord, I need your mercy, your loving kindness, even to live, to incline me, to turn me. And here it's, I'm fixed, I'm set. I'm following. But there's no competition here, right? Yahweh, the Lord God, inclines our hearts in a mighty work of grace, and we, in a mighty struggle in response to that grace, also labor under that grace and by that grace to bend back, to untwist, to straighten out our perverse wills. There should be no confusion about this in Lent. Bending back your will to righteousness is Herculean effort and work and labor across the scope of a lifetime by the grace of God. To incline ourselves toward the Lord and toward his law. And this part, our human cooperation with God's inclining grace, if you will, is seen here in this determination to obey in the face of suffering and in the face of weakness and in the face of real foes or enemies. So in closing, I want to make this point. I think in all three ways, that is, in his love of the light of God's word, in his weakness and in his suffering, and in his resolute obedience, the psalmist directs us to Jesus Christ. We think of the whole course of our Lord's obedience, but especially here, we could think of the gospel lesson of his temptations in the wilderness. Right? Where in the face of great weakness, 
What does he do? He flees to the light of the word. He cuts his way forward through satanic lies. He cuts a path for his feet. Jesus does. He resolves, and he resolved again and again and again across the 40 days and across his whole earthly existence in accordance with the the pact, the oath that he had sworn with the Father that he would follow God's righteous laws because they were the joy of his heart. They were his portion, and he would follow them to the bitter end, to the utmost extremity of obedience because he loved us to the uttermost out of his love for you. And it's by that obedience and that righteousness freely given to you in union with that Christ that we then say that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. We we cherish it as our heritage, as the joy of our heart, as our promised land. And then having been united to that same Jesus Christ by the oath of baptism and by the renewal of that oath in the supper, we too resolve then. We resolve at this season what we should always be resolving. Not to forget, not to stray, but to keep and to the following of our good God and his decrees to the end. Amen.